This podcast contains content and language not suitable for some listeners. Welcome to Oddities and Curiosities, a podcast about murder, the paranormal, and other oddities sure to pique your curiosity. We are Amanda and Brittany. <laughs> She's so cute, y'all. <laughs> okay. I've had about a shot's worth of vodka. Oh, yes. Yes, we have already. But Life is grand. Yeah. It's, it's delightful. And it was well needed and well deserved. Yeah. Yeah. So do y'all's little hump treats as well. Let us know what y'all are having this week. Mm-hmm. It's episode 51. Yeah. The big 5-1. The big 5-1. <laughs> is that a thing? Is that a phrase? Do people say it? It is now. It started out as summer camps. Is it still summer camps? Uh, that's what the that's what the spreadsheet says. Okay. What is, is it not summer camps? Well, yours is like a real, like, legit summer camp, but mine's just camping during okay. the summer. There's woods and shit in the summer. Yeah. Got it. Okay. okay. So that's what we're calling it, woods and shit in the summer? Sure. Okay. <laughs> New title. All right. We'll work on it. I don't know. It's fine. <laughs> but either way. So, yeah, um, it's summer camping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my fuck. <laughs> Go to the Facebook and the Instagram so you can see the pictures from this week's episode of Summer Camping. <laughs> that was so good. <laughs> That's my newscaster voice. I loved it. <laughs> um, yeah, go do that. I have like, I don't know, maybe 10 photos this week. I don't have that much photos. I'm trying to keep it conservative. I got all the good stuff. I just, I like all the photos, so I stuck them all in there. I couldn't help myself. Okay. Okay. So, this episode is coming to you on a Wednesday. Yes. So, it's hump day. It's hump day. Okay, so, what you got for us this week, boo-boo? I made a s'mores cocktail that I found on the Pinterest. I love the Pinterest. A s'mores martini. Yeah. Yeah. In this s'mores martini... Okay, so there's six ounces of chocolate liqueur, <laughs> Godiva, Godiva, six ounces of, and I googled how to say this, cream de cacao, cacao. I don't know what it is, but it's in there. I don't know, good. but I like it. And the recipe calls for three ounces of vanilla vodka. <laughs> we accidentally are drinking six ounces of vanilla vodka because Brittany can't read. Um, <laughs> And I got Smirnoff because it was limited at the thrifty liquor, what I could get, and ice. And you shake that all around. Now, after you, <laughs> after you shake that all around before you put it in your cups, garnish your cup with marshmallow cream and graham crackers and chocolate. Yeah. And then we roasted marshmallows with a big lighter and a bamboo <laughs> skewer in Amanda's kitchen. Hey, it's what I have available. So, yeah, super yummy s'mores martinis. They're so good. A little strong. Little strong. A little strong. But follow the recipe, friends. <laughs> we're not we're not babies. We've done this before. We've powered through it. And it was a really good episode. So I think it'll we'll be fine. Word slur bear with us. Yeah, y'all just enjoy this ride because there's no telling what's gonna happen on it. I realized well, I was thinking, man, this is so strong because it's nothing but liquor in it. Yeah, every bit of it is liquor. But I threw a little extra in there, so just a did. little bit of little, little bit of extra fun. It is what it is. Mm-hmm. It's fine. It's so cute though, because <laughs> I'm a cool this mom. One this legit is what cool turned out make. really cute. I'm making this again, mm-hmm. and it was really easy. It took her like maybe ten minutes. If hey, that, yeah, that's what the prep time says on the recipe. So if I if I made it in that time, I did good. All right, and it's kind of like camping. Yeah, there's s'mores when you go camping. And with the leftovers that you have in the bowls, you can make yourself a tasty little snack while you're making the drink. Dip in the graham cracker, Mm -hmm. dip in the marshmallow. That's good. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So do that. I guess we're ready to go. We ready to go? I think so. Okay. All right, hit me. Um, Trigger warning. Yeah. 
Yeah. Both of our cases this week have kids involved. Yep. And we don't typically like to do kid cases. But here we are. But here we are. And we both were very tasteful with it. Yes. There's not a whole lot of, you know, we cut out a lot of the ickies. Mm-hmm. I tamed it. So, you know, sorry. And if you have an aversion to the kids stuff. It's okay. We understand. We understand. Listen to the next one. Yes. Okay. So, my case is on the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. It's the big one. Yeah. A lot of you have probably heard of it if you listen to a lot of true crime podcasts and watch documentaries and stuff. Because there's a lot of information out there on this case. It's sad, though. I've heard it, but I've only heard like a little snippet. Mm. So, I'm, I'm excited to hear all of it. Okay. I don't, I don't know if excited is the right word, but... You're anticipating the story. I definitely am. Okay. Okay. So, summer camp has been a staple among American children for generations. In 1977, however, summer camp took a new and horrible turn thanks to one shocking triple homicide. Lori Farmer, Michelle Geis, and Doris Milner... And her name is actually Doris Denise Milner. So sometimes she's referred to as Denise, but I use Doris since that's her true first name and it was used more often. Okay. Uh, they were all between 8 and 10. No, no. And these girls were raped, beaten, and strangled to death. Fabulous. Their bodies were found on Monday, June 13th by a counselor heading toward the showers at around 6 a.m. Oh, my God. It was horribly clear that 10-year-old Doris was dead. Seeing her body on top of her sleeping bag, the counselor ran for help, believing it was an accident, like something had happened in Mm -hmm. the night. Mm -hmm. When the camp director and nurse arrived, the full truth was revealed as the other sleeping bags were unzipped to find more bodies. So when the girl was headed to the shower, she saw scattered sleeping bags. Okay. And only one girl's body was on top of the sleeping bag. Okay. So that that was old Doris, and that's who she saw. Yikes. Mays County in Oklahoma had a population of 30,000 and vast forest land. It was the perfect place to run a camp. Operated by the Girl Scouts since 1928, Camp Scott was two miles from the town of Locust Grove and 50 miles from Tulsa's Girl Scout headquarters. Mm. That year, the counselors met their campers at headquarters on June 12th. So that was just the day before. Oh, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Michelle Hoffman had aged out as a camper by 1977 at 15 years old. She would spend her seventh summer at Camp Scott as a counselor. Michelle says of her first impression of camp, quote, My first year at Camp Scott, I remember going, whoa, because it's so dark, dark, dark in those woods at night. If you've never been camping in a platform tent in the deep woods, it's a little intimidating. (laughs) After your first time there, you get it. You're just prepared. It's going to be dark, end quote. She noticed shy little Doris Milner in the crowd and assured her mother she would do fine. After about an hour's drive, the bus turned onto Cookie Trail Road. Oh, cute. So if you want to go to the notes real quick, I have a picture of the sign. Okay. It's a sign that says, Cookie Trail to Camp Scott, private property of Girl Scouts. That's the sign on the way to camp. All right. The sign's a little creepy. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Um, something that I took out that I feel like I need to put in at this okay. point is Doris Milner was African-American. Okay. And was the only African-American child at camp this year. Huh. Sadly, you will notice that uh, her murder was slightly different than the other two. Oh, and the, fir- the first thing about that is her little body was on top of her sleeping bag instead of closed up inside. So, okay. Yeah. Just to throw that out there. Okay. They had arrived at Camp Scott uh, after seeing the sign. While familiar campers found their tents, Michelle made sure to bring Doris to tent number eight herself. It was close to both the bathrooms and the kitchen. So while it was close to those facilities, it was actually the furthest away from the counselor's tent. Well, that's not a good idea. So, like, the counselor's tent was in the center, and the other tents were, like, kind of fanned out. Okay. And theirs happened to be furthest from the counselors, but the closest to the bathrooms and stuff. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Doris had found fast best friends in eight-year-old Lori Farmer and nine-year-old Michelle Geis. 
So I have a picture of the girls. They were tent mates. And this was the, all three of their first day meeting each other. So the picture says girls. And <laughs> so on the right, that's Doris. She was 10. She's beautiful. In the center, that's Lori. She was eight. Oh, my God. The big house. And on the left was Michelle. With her glasses. I oh, know. my gosh. They are all so cute. And Michelle was nine. So they were all different ages. Wow. Yeah. Oh. But they're all flipping adorable. Yeah, they are. Sweet little girls. Oh, the pigtails. Oh, my I know. Goodness. I love the pigtails. <laughs> Lori was the youngest girl at camp. Michelle had previously attended Camp Scott and knew it well. Um, Doris had wanted to back out of the trip after her two friends canceled, but her mother encouraged her to go anyway. Hmm. As a mom, I would just be devastated. I mean, I'd be devastated anyway, but God, the guilt I would feel. Absolutely. It makes me sick thinking about it. Okay. A fourth girl was supposed to stay in the tent with them, but wasn't scheduled to arrive until the next day. During the day, the three girls had all participated in camp activities and written letters home to their families. Lori wrote about Michelle and Doris in her letters, saying that they were her new friends. Even counselor Carla Wilhite said that while they were three of the quietest kids, individually, the tent was just as loud and lively as all the other tents before nightfall. So they really did become like fast besties. Braving the stormy night in their tent, the girls went to bed. So... After the day's events, all the all the girls went to their tents, and it started to storm. So, um, if you go to the notes, I have a picture of what the tents look like at this camp. This was their oh, actual yes. tent. So, look at tent picture. Oh, this their okay. This was their tent. So they're they're all on platforms. So the girls weren't laying on the ground. There was actually mattresses in there. Nice. But um, so they slept in sleeping bags on mattresses. So they were protected from the elements um, in their little platform tents. Okay. That's not horrible. No. That's okay, camping. It's way better than being on the ground. Oh, my goodness. So, believe it or not, I was a Girl Scout. Shut up. (laughs) In elementary school. We need photos, (laughs) ma'am. No, we don't. Yes, we Um, do. And I went to Girl Scout camp twice. (laughs) Um, The one year I went... We um, stayed in a cabin. It wasn't intense. It was like all the girls were in one cabin. We had actual beds and, you know, like we were in like a little log cabin thing. Okay. Another year that I went, we slept in tents on the ground. Nope. Yeah. Nope. Like even if you have a cushion, if it rains, mm-hmm. your shit's getting wet. Yeah. Like not, maybe not soaking wet, but you're getting wet. Yeah. Uh-huh. I went to Girl Scout camp twice. Oh my God. I just look like a Girl Scout, right? Mom. (laughs) Mom. Please. Oh, me and Mom are Facebook friends now. I'll just send Mom a message. Oh, my gosh. I was going to say, you're not going to talk to her on the podcast because she don't listen. (laughs) She's like, I don't know how to do that, Brittany. How hard is it? It's apparently hard enough because my mom. I've given her instructions, for goodness sake. My mom wanted to know where she could watch it. Oi. Oh, they're so cute, aren't they? (laughs) They're so cute. (laughs) Okay, so. Well, yeah, we're reading a story. Yeah, back to that. (laughs) Okay. While news reports at 8 a.m. varied from a freak accident to foul play, authorities at the scene were already aware of the sickening truth. Yeah. It was Carla Wilhite who found the bodies. Mm. Okay. This is a, a rough paragraph, and this is probably the only, like, really rough paragraph. Okay. Lori and Michelle were beaten to death while Doris had been strangled. So, there's another separation between the African-American girl and the Caucasian girls. Okay. Two of the girls had been raped and the other sodomized. It's unclear mm-hmm. who suffered which, but it was obvious for sure that one had been treated differently from the others. So... Uh. Well, I think it's pretty safe to assume what happened there. Yeah. Um, In the meantime, buses brought all the other campers back to Tulsa where their parents were waiting at 2.15 in the afternoon. So that morning, they gathered up all the other campers. They didn't tell them what was going on. They just told them they had to go home. And all the other girls packed up their stuff and got them on the bus and back home to their parents. Their parents knew what was going on was because ask, the news did the, okay. Well, in the seventies, everybody watched the news. Okay. True. So, 
they didn't have the Facebook. So the parents knew what was going on and, but the girls were oblivious. Which is probably better. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Could you imagine? Oh could God. you imagine not knowing if your daughter was coming to you at two fifteen? Because they didn't release the names of the girls. Okay, that's the part I remember about the parents not knowing. Yeah, the parents didn't. The know. parents didn't know which kids. Yeah. Could you they imagine? They just knew that something. Okay. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. yeah. No. Oh. Mm. That's terrible. That's terrible. That was that was a fuck up on the on the police's part. Yeah, but. The mass panic of all those parents of all the girls at camp. No, thank you, please. Mm. But it is what it is. Police interviews revealed that there had been some strange noises heard during the night. Counselor Carla Wilhite heard a guttural moaning sound coming from the main road through camp. After investigating, she determined it was probably just an animal, so she returned to bed. A camper in tent number seven was woken about half an hour later with a flashlight shown in their face. One girl heard a scream at 3 a.m. while another heard someone crying, Mama, Mama. Oh, fuck. Unsure of what to do, both girls went back to sleep. Oh, that choked me up a little uh, bit. My throat. You okay? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I hadn't read that part out loud. Yeah. Okay. It's a little bit different when you're saying it out loud. Mm-hmm. All together. Yep. I need a minute. Oh, my God. I'm emotional right now anyway. Sorry. It's okay. I just can't imagine the mama mama thing is. All right. Man, that part sucked. You got more. Yeah, that that's literally that's the last of the bad stuffs. You got to eat one of your marshmallows if you can get it with your. Okay. It's really good. Is it going to make me feel better? It might. Okay. I ate my other one. It was pretty good. I can't stab it. I can't either. Get over here, you fluffy bitch. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm just going to get it. I'm sticking my finger in there. That's what she said. <laughs> oh, got it. Mmm. Mmm, I'm mean. <laughs> mm. full of alcohol. Mm-hmm. I just splooched alcohol in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. You're right. I feel better now. <laughs> See? Okay. Whew. Marshmallows always help. Yeah. All right. Okay. So, unsure of what to do about what they heard, both girls went back to sleep. Mm-hmm. A nearby landowner heard quite a bit of traffic on a road near Camp Scott between 2 and 3 a.m. The crime scene itself was covered in blood. It looked as if it were wiped around with a mattress and towels. Not necessarily like they were trying to clean it up, but it had just been smeared. Yeah. Like things were moved around. <sighs> Footprints of different sizes were found inside and outside of the tent. Duct tape, cords, rope, and a flashlight were left behind. A print was found on the lens of the flashlight, but they failed to identify it. Damn. They noted that the flashlight had newspaper stuffed inside it to keep the batteries from rattling. Huh. Yeah. I thought that was kind of a um, odd thing to think about. I mean, covered everything. Yeah. Fuck. The duct tape and rope both matched the kind used on the three girls. And further away, police located a crowbar and several empty beer bottles. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Probably most disturbing was the idea that these murders had been planned for months. Mm. In April, a counselor's cabin was ransacked and a note was left behind that read, quote, We are on a mission to kill three girls in tent one. Signed, the killer, end quote. Uh, 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 uh-huh. Uh, one counselor reported uh, finding a tent slashed open. Others reported having items stolen from their tents and hearing noises in the distance. The camp director treated it as a hoax. This was... Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. So uh, they didn't sure. pick tent one. They picked tent eight, but still. <sighs> okay. I can, I can see where you would want to think that's a practical joke, but um, maybe just. Let's take that kind of shit a little more maybe seriously, take some please. precautions. Yeah. So Sheriff Glenn Weaver claimed to have found the murder weapon on June 16th, but District Attorney Sid Wise almost immediately denied that was true. Could not find any more information on that. <sighs> Police dogs located a cave two miles from the camp that held a flashlight battery, glasses that looked stolen from the camp, 
and photos of women that they were able to link to a man named Jean Leroy Hart. Bastard. As their search expanded, police found more duct tape along with groceries and newspapers. The newspapers were from the same issue found inside the flashlight. Well, let's put two and two together there. <laughs> the wall of the nearby cave read, quote, The killer was here. Bye-bye, fools. 77617, <laughs> Literally spelled out. Mm-hmm. Wow. I have a picture of Shut the cave up. note. Fuck yeah. But it's dated 77617. The killer was here. Bye-bye, fools. Douchebag. So that was four days after the girls were murdered. Oh, my God. So he was still there. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yep. Um, oh, my God. Convicted of rape and kidnapping, Jean Leroy Hart had escaped Mays County Jail in 1973. Oh, fantastic. So he escaped four Great. years before the girls were murdered. Great. Police believed the local Cherokee community had been hiding him ever since. Because he was a member of the Cherokee community. Sometimes you just shouldn't do things. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. With the help of 40 FBI agents and $1.25 million later. Good God. Yeah. Police tracked him down at a Cherokee cabin on April 6, 1978. It had been the largest and longest manhunt in Oklahoma history. Yeah, that's... Wow. While Hart had been hiding among fellow Cherokees, members of the American Indian Movement argued Sheriff Weaver had been trying to find a scapegoat among their tribe to pin the murders on. So it was a big thing uh, about his, you know, his nationality, his roots. Right. Um, a lot of people, Cherokee and not, thought that he was being discriminated against. But um, the feller was in jail. Uh-huh. For rape and kidnapping already. Yeah. And yeah. he escaped. It's not a stretch, people. It's not a stretch. And since he was on an Indian what a reservation? Yeah. They have different laws. Mm-hmm. Which can't was touch why, them. Which was why they were hiding out there. But yep. they got him. Good. Um Hart was arrested and transported to Oklahoma State Penitentiary and charged with three first degree murders. I have a picture of him when he was arrested. It says heart arrest. Good. We get to see him. Yeah. Ugh. In his snazzy 70s tank his top and His legs shorts. make me want to vomit. It's so much legs. And so do his bare arms. Yeah. Why? I don't this know. This picture doesn't show his face, but wait till you see his face. Ugh. Okay. And also, side note, look how snazzy the FBI uniforms were. <laughs> you know what they look like? <laughs> They look like the elf costumes in the Santa Claus. Yes. And the ones that go to rescue him. Yes. <laughs> I wonder if they're green. Oh my gosh, I can't. I need to know now. <laughs> the trial from March 19th to May 30th, 1979, saw the prosecution argue Hart's eyeglasses were stolen from the camp and that hair found on the duct tape resembled his. The defense, meanwhile, claimed the glasses had been taken from Hart's previous rape victims. Oh, good. Which Hart admitted, and that Weaver planted the rest. So they're saying the sheriff planted all of the evidence. Um, um probably not, friend. I, I, I don't think so. Then they had waitress D.M. Boyd testifying that she'd seen a nervous man at her diner 15 miles from Camp Scott on the morning of the killings. So another suspect emerged from that. Okay. He was William Stevens, a convicted rapist who an 11-year-old camper had seen on Camp Scott grounds days before June 13th. Hmm. A little sus. Yeah. Stevens' friend, Dwayne Peters, not only claimed that he had loaned him the flashlight found at the scene, but that Stevens admitted the killings to him in October 1977. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. False confessions happen all the time. It's true. So, I don't know. But alas, a jury of six men and six women deliberated for five minutes before finding... (laughs) No, before you laugh. Okay. Five minutes before finding Gene Leroy Hart innocent on March 30th, 1979. Oh. So, I have a picture of him in the courtroom. Oh, okay. It says Hart, and he's got the glasses from the kit. Was there not enough evidence? Is that why they decided he was innocent? I honestly, in um, my opinion, this is just my opinion. Okay. 
Because there's lots of speculation there. Yeah. Um, but my opinion is that the jurors were afraid of, of being told they were being racist because there was so much backlash from the Cherokee community. And oh, okay. They were trying so hard to prove that he was guilty without bringing his nationality into play. And so I think that that had something to do with it. Okay. And because it was the seventies and how do you determine that? Yeah, that's true. (laughs) There wasn't DNA and shit then. So it's hard. It was harder to, to convict. Okay. He died in prison a little more than two months after being acquitted from a heart attack. Oh shit. Yeah. He was in prison for another crime. So he was finishing out his sentence from what he escaped from. Okay. Well, so at least he was in prison. It was only 1989 that DNA testing of semen samples found at the scene showed that three of the five probes matched Hart's DNA. So three of the five probes tested matched his DNA. Mm -hmm. Over 40 years later, investigators from the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, along with the current sheriff of Mays County, Mike Reed, are still searching for answers. Okay. Yeah, so, um, so Lori's parents, Lori Farmer's parents. Pigtails. Yeah, pigtails. Okay. Her parents came to the current sheriff, Mike Reed, and said, is there any way you would consider reopening this case and looking at it with fresh eyes? And he did because he was a little boy when all of that happened. So oh, it was a memory ooh. from his childhood. And he was like, you know what? I'm going to help these people. Like, hell so he yeah, reopened it. In. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yes. So, I love that. Yeah. Hero. With the advancements of forensic technology and funds uh, Reed was able to raise on his own, they are able to reanalyze key pieces of evidence. Reed says all the DNA from the scene matched the three girls and Hart. Okay. Okay. Um, And here is a quote from him. Quote, if there absolutely was no DNA whatsoever, just the information that I know now, that was not allowed to be shown to the jury. There is absolutely no doubt whatsoever Gene Hart is the person who committed these crimes, end quote. Well, okay then. Yeah. So, here's another little tidbit. Oh, shit. Broadway star Kristen Chenoweth. <gasps> you know who she is, right? Yes. Okay. I love her in Holiday, by the way. That is not a super popular movie, but it's that like a... That is such a good movie. It's a rom-com on Netflix that's fucking hilarious oh homework for you guys watch holiday because it is so cute it is so cute i watched it this past christmas actually and jackson is fine jesus christ and he's australian watch holiday yeah do yourself a favor <laughs> yeah <laughs> so uh kristen chenoweth was an eight-year-old girl living in mays county oklahoma in 1977 oh shit the murders hit too close to home she said quote 45 years ago, I never thought I would still be haunted by these murders that stripped away our innocence. That's why I've come back home to find answers, to find healing, end quote. Chenoweth's mm-hmm. return to her hometown to investigate the murders is detailed in the Hulu special Keeper of the Ashes, the yeah. Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. Yeah. It premiered May 24th, 2022. I didn't check, but I'm sure it's still on Hulu. It is. Chenoweth said that the year the girls were killed, she had begged her mom to attend the same camp, but ended up staying home. (gasps) Quote, in third grade, I told my mom I wanted to go to Girl Scout camp, Camp Scott, but I had gotten sick and mom said, you can't go. And I remember being devastated. I could have, would have, should have been on that trip. It has stuck with me my whole life. End quote. Oh my God. That is insane. And then we would not have been graced with her awesome talent. Mm-hmm. Her singing and dancing. Oh my gosh, she is so adorable, mm-hmm. y'all. She's like what? She is three the feet tall, loudest tiny person ever. <laughs> She's so cute. <laughs> so uh, the Farmer and Milner families oh unsuccessfully sued the Magic Empire Girl Scout Council in 1985, while Farmer opened a Parents of Murdered Children chapter in Oklahoma. The Girl Scouts sold the camp to a local family in the 1980s. Camp Scott remains close to this day, though the site is frequented by ghost hunters and paranormal enthusiasts who claim the three murdered girls haunt the area. Wow. The end. So what you're saying is we're allowed access. I don't know. We're not ghost hunters. I don't know if they would let us. We are paranormal enthusiasts. Mm -hmm. We fall into the category. So we're going to Oklahoma? Fuck yeah, we're going to Oklahoma. Okay, I'm down. Oh my gosh. But that's my story. And now we should all drink a lot. We should drink 
a whole lot more. Do we need to make another one? God. I don't know. I don't know if I can make uh, it. <laughs> I'm feeling a little twisty. I mean, I started crying a while ago. I know. But that's okay. It happens. I've I've cried all my stuff before too, but it was before the podcast and I was able to like <laughs> choke it down. So but it's okay. It's okay. I mean, yeah, when there's kids it's it's hard. It's hard. I need to vape. You vape. I'm gonna try to compose myself because I apologize. I just realized I might be a little tipsy. So reading this may get fun. <laughs> okay, friend. You just hold on. You know how you know Brittany's a little tipsy? She takes She takes all these. It happens every once in a while. All right. My case has some kiddos in it, too. Okay. So, sorry. But it's a good one. Okay. All right. It's the Wells Gray Park Murders. Okay. I, I don't know anything about this. I did not either. So, because anytime you type in summer camp, murders, crime, cases, the Camp Scott stuff pops up everywhere. Oops. Everywhere. My bad. <laughs> so, I did a lot of scrolling and I found this and I was like, okay, all right, all right, all right, I got it. Okay. So, on August 2nd, 1982... Bob Johnson, 44, and Jackie Johnson, 41, and their daughters, Janet, 13, and Karen, 11, went on a two-week camping trip with Jackie's parents, George Bentley, 66, and Edith Bentley, 59. Sadly, it was the last family vacation they were ever to go on. The Johnsons and Bentleys were last heard from on August 6, 1982. I have a picture of the happy family. Okay. Okay. It has a picture of Karen and Janet and mom and dad. (laughs) Who wear short shorts? (laughs) Yes, ma'am. They do. Yeah, they do. And And hair. I love the fact that all the females are in short shorts Mm -hmm. and short sleeves. Mm -hmm. And dad's over here dressed like Johnny Cash. (laughs) (laughs) Long sleeve button up shirt, blue jeans, belt buckle. I'd probably be dressed more like dad. <laughs> yeah. 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 I don't know. Maybe it was Louisiana in July. Maybe. But hey. dude, dude, really? All right. That's fabulous. Okay. And um, a picture of the girls with the grandparents as well. Okay. How pressure the hats. <laughs> <laughs> Both of them. Both of them. Oh, my goodness. They're so adorable. They look like such a cute, happy family. I know. (laughs) Yeah. Now tell me some horrible things about them. Okay. The group traveled to the remote Wells Gray Provincial Park, a wilderness park located in east-central British Columbia, Canada. It covers 5,250 square kilometers, which is 1.3 million acres. That's a lot of land, you guys. That's a lot. That's a lot. And is British Columbia's fourth largest park. Just the fourth. Hold on. Huh? You said they were going camping for two weeks? Yeah. Who the fuck camps for two (laughs) weeks? I've done it. Why? Why would you choose to do that? Were you at least in a camper? No. It was was tent camping and it was July. And I was three months pregnant. Are you... Ma'am. Ma'am. It was for my oldest daughter's birthday. Look, it was only supposed to be a weekend and it got extended. To two weeks? Yeah, it was torture, you guys. Oh my God. We had a window unit or I would not have survived. Why? We rigged up a window unit into the tent. I wouldn't have gone. There would have been men left behind. I'd have been out. (laughs) I was along for the ride. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay. Sorry. And fourth largest park is crazy. They like trees in Canada. I mean, it is beautiful. Yeah. We should go there. We should go there. Oh, I have a picture. Damn it. I didn't put it in here. There's a picture of a waterfall at the park. I like waterfalls. I'll stick it in there. You'll stick it in? (laughs) 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 Oh, my God. We even did the same voice. We spent too much time Stop it. It's like towards the beginning. Here it is. Don't go chasing waterfalls. That is pretty. 
Mm-hmm. I'd totes go there. Yeah. Totes. Going to Canada. All right. Okay. So their time near the beautiful Wells Gray Park was cut short by a sadistic, brutal killer obsessed with young girls. Mm. A sad and dep- depressing story of outdoor adventure gone wrong, bad luck, and a mission by two Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Mount me's. <laughs> Um, detectives to find the perpetrator of these awful crimes. That sentence didn't make sense anymore because I giggled through the middle of it. But it's fine. (laughs) We get it. (laughs) We got it. There were Mount Mees, okay? There were Mount Mees. There were Mount Mees. The Johnson, the, the Johnson, the Johnsons pitched camp at a secluded area near the old Bear Creek prison site beside Phage Creek. Man, y'all fucking up. Nope. Already know. Oh. You okay? Oh. I ate the other marshmallow. Mm-hmm. It had lost its structural integrity. <laughs> oh. So it was a little slimy and squishy. Little, it was a little slimy. But you know what? It kind of burned my tongue with the amount of vodka that was sucked into that sucker. Oh, it's like putting a cherry in there. It's mm-hmm. like a cherry bomb. It's a marshmallow bomb. Mellow bomb. Mellow bomb. It's a mellow bomb. Okay. Oh, my God. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're fine. <laughs> they are really good, though. Mine's almost gone, and I'm kind of sad. Present. There we go. The Bentleys, the grandparents, subsequently arrived with their truck and camper van with a boat on top. I'm hanging out with the grandparents. I love the grandparents. <laughs> I'm here for it. On August 16th, 1982, Bob Johnson failed to return to work at Gorman Brothers Lumber in West Bank. This was very unusual for the 25-year employee, Fellow workers reported that Bob was missing on August 23rd, 1982. They waited a good bit. A a while, yeah. That's how you know that Brittany (laughs) didn't work at Gorman Brothers Lumber. (laughs) Uh, No, because you work with me, and the first moment I don't see your car already there when I pull up. Mm Mm-hmm. Bitch, where you at? Uh Uh-huh. And when she's not flouncing in by 730, Mm -hmm. I'm like, where the fuck's Amanda? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that wouldn't happen with (laughs) our employment. Mm -mm. So, five weeks. Five weeks, people. After the families were last heard from on September 13th, 1982, a mushroom picker. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's, he's microdosing. Reported finding a burned-out car with the driver's side door open in a clearing off a mountainside logging road about 13 miles from where they were camping. The wreckage was similar to the car that the Johnsons were driving. I have a photo of the car. Okay, that's a little sus. And can we revisit the mushroom picker for one second? <laughs> I need some clarification. Yes, I know. <laughs> is he out there getting getting high? Is he out there doing that? Or is he out there harvesting mushrooms? We need a little more clarification. I'm going to say he's doing both. On what he's doing here. I, in my mind, he's doing both. He's probably He's high, high and, and harvesting, harvesting for his next dose. Okay. I see it. Or future doses, you know. Yeah. He's taking it back to his friends to make tea. And yeah. Don't, and don't. I want, I want anyway. some mushroom tea. Okay. No, anyways, you, let's please. go look Show at the, the car. picture of the car. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There's no. the car. I can't like that. No. Doesn't look good. Mm-mm. If anybody was in there. It, they it, ain't no it, it didn't go well. Mm-mm. So police found a pile of burnt bones on the back seat, which were later identified as that of four adults. All four of them got burnt up in the back seat? Mm. Okay. And in the trunk were the remains of the two girls. Oh, no, thank you. The charred remains were that of the Bentley and Johnson families. Forensic investigation of the bone fragments found that they had been shot with a twenty-two caliber gun. Because of the location of the vehicle in the accessible area, it was quickly assumed that a local was responsible for the murders. Oh, no. Other can, lo- mm-hmm. can I just say real quick how I think it's amazing that all you have is bones to look at? Yeah. But you can determine what type of gun they were shot with. That's amazing. I know that really is amazing. That's crazy. I like even way back in 1982. That's they had the ability to know what type of gun it was and the caliber. Yeah, I mean, science is awesome. So awesome. I I am intoxicated. (laughs) You might be. (laughs) Science is so 
cool. Science is really cool, you guys. <laughs> I love this so much. This is going to be an eventful rest of the episode. Y'all just buckle the fuck up. Okay, I'm almost done with my drink. Okay. Sorry. Okay, so other locals had seen the family quit laughing. Bucka. So. <laughs> Why'd you have to say that? <laughs> okay, so other locals had seen the family camped at Bear Creek and a search of the area by the RCMP, which is in Royal Mounties, you know. Mounties. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> resulted in six spent twenty two caliber shells being found. Um, some beer caps of the brand known to be drunk by Bob Johnson were also found, as well as full bottles cooling in a nearby stream. Okay. And who's Bob Johnson? The dad. Oh, okay. okay. My bad. The dad. Sorry, I forgot his name. That, shame it's okay. On me. No, shame there, on me. there may be There were so many names. It's and okay. I There's no stupid questions here. There is no <laughs> stupid questions here. There okay. are no stupid questions here. It was like, shit, it's in there like I should know that name. Yeah, okay, yeah. Dad was Bob. Okay, I, I'm here. Okay. Two sticks with sharp ends, probably used by the two girls to roast marshmallows, mm. were also at the site. They probably used a fire and not a big lighter. <laughs> I'm gonna hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, what are you doing? What are you even doing? <laughs> However, the Bentley's 1981 Ford truck and camper and their camping gear, boat, and motor and other possessions were still missing. Because, yeah, if you're going to steal something, you steal the truck with the camper and the boat. I know. I want the boat on top. Okay. They had right. all the good shit. Um, in April 1983, a television reenactment of the killings was filmed on the site of the murders, which was then broadcast across Canada. Okay. Police hoped the reenactment would spark someone's memory, but despite being flooded with calls, no solid leads came of the effort. That's a good idea. I mean, it was a good idea, but... It, it was something. Yeah. Police created an exact, exact replica of the Bentley 1981 Ford camper down to the last detail, including the aluminum boat strapped to the roof... Because mm -hmm. we know that's what we both want. Yep. In May 1983, they drove the camper from British Columbia to Quebec, again in the hopes someone would see it and remember something relating to the case. I have a photo of the truck okay. that they recreated. They were set. All right. They were set. They were. They got everything they need right there. The Bentleys was balling. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be balling like the Bentleys. I want to be a baller, a shot caller. <laughs> 20-inch blades. Oh, man, Paula. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Woo. Yep. In advance. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I feel it. I can I can see it when I'm reading. You can see clearly now? <laughs> no, I cannot. <laughs> the rain is still pouring over here. <laughs> okay. I'm done. I'm done. In advance of the camper's arrival at each town or city, police held press conferences to publicize the camper's arrival. Over 1,300 alleged sightings were investigated, but all turned out to be false. So then the RCMP, the Mounties, Mounties. posted a $7,500 reward, printed 10,000 posters, and sent them to police detachments and post offices across North America. Okay. Some leads generated from all the publicity through investigators seriously off the scent. Many hours were wasted on these wild goose chases as the public phoned in thousands of sightings, which all needed to be investigated. Wasted their fucking time. Yeah. But then in October of 1983, 14 months after the murders with the trail running cold for the killer, the Bentley's camper truck was finally found by two forestry workers. 15 miles from the murder site and 20 miles from where the um, car was located. Yeah. How did... Like, that's... It really wasn't that far. It took you that long? It took them over a year. it was 15 miles away. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It had been burned using an accelerant, probably gasoline mixed with something. The truck was well hidden, and it appeared that there had been an attempt to drive the truck into the gorge, but logs had blocked its path. Okay. So, I have a photo of the truck in the woods. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, the logs wouldn't let that happen. Nope. The error were. Mm-hmm. So, there you go. Got it. 
Police lifted the wreck out with a helicopter and transported it to the RCMP crime lab. The burnt remains provided no clues, and the abandoned logging road on Trophy Mountain was not easy to access. The location reconfirmed um, a local was most likely involved as outsiders would have been unlikely to find the isolated spot. Yeah. The RCMP started questioning possible suspects again in Clearwater. They went door to door in the small community and questioned everyone in the town a second time. Way to be diligent, Mounties. I mean, they really were trying. <sighs> David William Shearing, 24, a local identified by someone who told police that over a year earlier, David had inquired about how to re-register a Ford pickup and repair a hole in its door. Okay. Shearing lived three miles from the site of the murders, and the police had never released the information about the bullet hole. Okay. Mm-hmm. I have a photo of David. All right. Oh, no, thank you, please. Told you he was ugly. No, thank you, please. Mm-hmm. Told you. Look at the schnoz on that mm-hmm. one. Yikes. Poor baby. Mm-hmm. And that's mean, unfortunate. It's unfortunate. It is unfortunate. But um, we don't like him. He is a sick motherfucker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just sounded so white, but <laughs> he, he, he is. Yeah. On November 19th, 1983, the RCMP found Shearing in Tumblr Ridge, where he was due to appear in court in a few days on a possession of stolen property charge of some tools. Surprise, surprise. He was taken into custody for questioning. Despite his reputation and criminal records, Shearing came from a respectable family. His father had once been a prison guard, and his brother was a sheriff. Holy shit. (laughs) David had graduated from high school and had successfully completed a heavy mechanics course, which you can make really good money So is that that. like, like how preacher's kids are supposed to be really badly behaved and just run wild? So is that like the same for... Law enforcement kids? Fuck yeah. I was Hell an angel. yeah it is. Hell no. I, <laughs> I'm a law enforcement I wasn't, kid, but I, I was really good. <laughs> Says the person who jumped out of the back of the Jeep to go steal some pumpkins and shit. <laughs> that was later in life, and you're not supposed to tell that story. <laughs> you already did. I did. It, it was on the podcast. You did. Yes, you did. I didn't jump out of the Jeep. Oh, well, somebody did. <laughs> Other people jumped out of the Jeep. Okay. I was along for the ride. I I understand that situation. Yeah. It was beyond your control. I mean, nobody tied me up, but... What were you supposed to do? Jump jump out out of the Jeep? No, that would hurt. It was a whole thing. You would mess up your hair. It was a thing. Okay. (laughs) Yay, you. (laughs) Oh, to be 17. Okay. Um... The RCMP detectives, um, Sergeant Mike Eastham... Eastham. 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 And Constable... <laughs> We're in Louisiana. I forgot. Eastham. <laughs> and Constable Ken Label. Label? Label? That's Label. I don't know. I didn't, I, didn't pract- <laughs> I didn't practice the names. I was more focused on the story. I didn't practice shit. Um. <laughs> That's Label to be his last name. All right. <laughs> Sergeant Mike Eastham and Constable Ken Liable were convinced David was guilty from the beginning and tried to get his confidence. Eventually, they got him to confess to the crimes by getting him to relax and defer appointing a lawyer. Really? Mm, it seems like kind of a coerced thing, but... Uh, yeah. But... When I read that, I was like, wow, they already got him to confess. But what it meant was they were getting him to confess to the um, stealing of the tools. Okay. Right here. Okay. So, coincidentally, David was one of the first individuals to have been interviewed by RCMP after the investigation started when the two families were discovered in the car. The interview took place in the backyard of the Shearing family farmhouse around a mile from the murder scene. Oh, my goodness. At the time of the interview, the murder weapon, the twenty-two caliber rifle, mm-hmm. hung on the wall of the family home. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> when police were questioned why they didn't seize the firearm and test it to see if casings fired from it matched those found at the scene, Inspector Vic Edwards cited basic rights. 
I don't have any right to go into your house and examine your guns, the same as I didn't have any right to go into Mr. Shearing's house. We had no reason to suspect him. Well, probably because his dad was a sheriff. Yeah, what the fuck ever. No, his dad was a prison guard. His brother was the sheriff. Whatever. Get it right. You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Are you you enjoying (laughs) your snack over there? She is fingering the cup. <laughs> and getting it's so good and though. getting all of the marshmallow stuff off the side of it. It is really good. Mom, we don't want your sink to get clogged with the graham cracker. I stuff. appreciate you doing I'm me that favor. Of you. That is so uh-huh. thoughtful and considerate. I'm so touched <laughs> right now. <laughs> As I gracefully shove marshmallow fluff and chocolate in my face. Yeah, I'm not looking at you. I'm looking at the screen. So okay. to your heart's content over there, ma'am. All right, I'm good. I'm good. Okay. What? All right. Initially, Initially, he was led to believe the arrest was related to a hit-and-run incident, which he quickly confessed to before the detectives confronted him with the Bennett-Johnson case. David accidentally admitted to East Ham that he had heard the murders were committed at Bear Creek, which was not information that had been released to the public, you fucking dumbass. He told on himself. Yeah, he did. After effort and persuasion, East Ham managed to convince Shearing to confess to the six murders, and he eventually agreed to reenact the murders. Shut and your even mouth. turn over the murdered family's possessions. Oh my god. Crucially, he handed over the twenty two caliber Remington pump action rifle, which was forensically matched as the murder weapon. So they had the right guy. Yeah. David initially started stated in his confession that he shot the four adults as they sat around the, their campfire, then shot the girls as they slept in the tent, saying he only wanted to rob them. Mm. He told the RCMP that he loaded the bodies into their car, drove it by night to the mountainside, and set it on fire using five gallons of gasoline. He said he cleaned the campsite, then took the truck camper back to its nearby property, his nearby property, only to burn it later when he discovered how difficult it was to re-register. Oh, gosh. Which tracks. The RCMP also learned through David's closest friend, Ross Coburn, that he was with him when he ran over a drunk lying on a Wells Gray Park Road in 1980, killing him. Oh, my gosh. The accident was never reported to police. Good guys, huh? Mm. Yeah. 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 Two years later, on January 19th, 1984, David waived his right to a preliminary hearing the day of his trial, or that his trial was set to begin on April 16th. He changed his mind and pled guilty to six counts of second-degree murder for the 1982 Johnson and Bentley families. Supreme Court Justice Harry McKay said that um, what we have, very simple, very simply, is a cold-blooded and senseless execution of six defenseless and innocent victims for no apparent reasons. The victims were unknown to the prisoner. They did not in any way provoke him. He knew they were camped at the site and carefully scouted the situation. He went home and returned either that night or the next day with a loaded twenty-two caliber rifle. Hmm. On April 17, 1984, Justice McKay sentenced David to six concurrent terms of life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. This was the maximum possible penalty for second-degree murder and the first time in Canadian history that it had been handed out. Oh, so they're usually pretty generous then. Yeah. Okay. Making history here. However, many were perplexed that the sentences were concurrent giving him the chance to escape the prison system later in life. David did not appeal his sentence, which is kind of rare. Yeah. Following his conviction, um, RCMP Sergeant Mike Eastham re-interviewed him and got the disturbing truth behind the... Sorry, y'all. Got the disturbing truth behind the killings. Pedophilia. Mm -mm. David finally told Sergeant Eastham that... uh, what what had really happened was he lusted over the young girls and was determined to sexually abuse them, even if it meant killing the parents and grandparents. <sighs> I have a picture of the two girls. Okay. Just so you can see them a little bit closer up. Um, there's Janet with her adorable little flower clip in her hair. She's super cute. Yes. 
You can tell she has freckles on her nose. I know. I love, I love prickly the noses. Yeah, she's definitely sun kissed. You can tell she's got some little highlights in her hair, mm-hmm. and plus all the freckles. Yeah, so cute. And then Karen has little freckles as well. She does. Are they wearing matching outfits? It looks like they're it wearing looks matching like outfits. Ma- yeah, because that's what I was thinking too. And her haircut is so on trend for now. <laughs> I know. They're adorable. Hello, Stranger Things. I don't watch that. I can't talk to you. Okay. Well, you and talk entirely too much. You and talk and talk to <laughs> What? You talk entirely too much to me then. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. You're like way coolers and all the coolers. What the fuck? You are way cooler in all the areas that count, so it's fine. <laughs> okay. Shit. Okay. See, what happened was... Vodka? Is, no. no. Oh, no. Oh, I got no. Marshmallow in my hair. It's fine. Um, <laughs> I wanted to watch Stranger Things, and then Steven told me to wait for him to watch Stranger Things. And then he never wanted to watch it when I wanted to watch it, and so I just never started watching it. Because I felt like he might get mad if I started watching it without him, so I haven't seen Stranger Things. I've watched... Literally one episode. I respect that, but we're on season four now, and it's time to get with it. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You had ample opportunities (laughs) to get caught up. I have no sympathy for you over here. Oh, my God. Okay. Okay. Uh, All right. So, um, this is where it gets a little... Bagoo? Yucky. But here we go. All right, David said he saw the family when they set up camp and spent several days spying on them. At dusk on August 10th, he walked to the campsite with his rifle and shot Bob, then Jackie, which is the mom and dad, then George and Edith, which are the grandparents, in cold blood. No. The two girls were already in their tent ready for bed. David said he looked in. Told them a dangerous biker gang was around and their parents had run for help. While they stayed in the tent, he said he loaded their bodies um, of the parents and their grandparents into the back seat of the family car and covered them with a blanket. Then he crawled into the tent with the girls. Ew, no. Um, he said he kept the girls alive for nearly a week, staying with them both at his ranch and at a small fishing cabin on the Clearwater River whilst repeatedly raping them. Mm. They left the cabin after they were nearly discovered. A prison guard was supervising prisoners from a local jail who were fishing on the river. He came to the door of the cabin to tell David not to be alarmed. But David hid the girls behind the door and told them to stay quiet. The guard noticed nothing unusual. Mm. He moved the girls to his family farm the next day. And then on August 16th, he walked Karen, the younger daughter, into the woods and killed her. He repeated the process with Janet, the older daughter, on August 17th. He told the girls to turn around so he could urinate. And then he shot each sister in the back of the head. Oh, my gosh. He took the bodies back to the Johnson family car, which he'd hidden, and put the girls' bodies in the trunk. He drove the car to a secluded spot and burned it. East Ham later wrote a book with Ian McLeod about the case called The Seventh Shadow in which the author goes into great detail about all aspects of the case. If you want any further aspects of this horrible crime. No, I'm Gucci. Um, I have a picture of the cover of the book, just in case you're interested. Okay. If you want to go check that out for a sec. It's it's like an aerial view of the car. Yeah, that's um, creepy. Yeah. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. (laughs) So he's been up for parole a few times, but it's... Been denied, thank of God. Course. Get this shit. He got married. No, no. I didn't even no, care to put no. her name. It was in the article. I No, no. She believes he deserves a second chance. No, no, no. So David Shearing or David Ennis, because he took on his mother's maiden name. Like, that's going to make a fuck. To um, try to protect his identity in jail. No. Um, He remains in prison at Bowden Institution, south of Red Deer, Alberta. So, yeah. Gross. Yep. If you care where he's at. Okay. There there he is. 
Well, this episode was a downer. I, I could not find a lot of funny moments in this one, so Me I either. apologize. Me either. Let's not do summer camps again. No, I don't need. I don't think we needed 2.0 on mm-hmm. this one. No, no more summer camps. As I slurp up my vodka because I need to drink now. I drank all of mine. I'm over here eating fucking marshmallow fluff. Yeah, she's eating the cup over there. That's fine. It's okay. It's damn near clean. You're welcome. You got a lot more licking to do if you want to. <laughs> There's a lot of marshmallow on that cup. All right. Who wants a douche box? Dude. <laughs> um, uh, I got one. <laughs> I got one. Okay. <laughs> this episode's coming to you on July 20th. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A Wednesday. <laughs> so, on July 20th, American spree killer Alton Coleman was arrested in Evanston. As Coleman and Brown, this sounds like a story has already been started. Like, we should know who these fuckers are. Okay. okay sorry, I got sidetracked. No, you're fine. As Coleman and Brown walked westward across an intersection, they passed immediately in front of a man in a car stopped at a red light who was from Coleman's old neighborhood in Waukegan. Where are we? Are we in America? I don't know. Where is Evanston? Where? I'm so confused. Okay, I'm just going to keep reading. Maybe it'll start making sense. He recognized Coleman and drove north to a gas station and notified the police. A description of the two was broadcast to police. Who wrote this? Illinois. No. Is it Evanston? Like Evanston? Yeah. Illinois. I'm sure there's Evanston's in every state. I don't know. Sake. I just said, where is Evanston in Illinois? <laughs> where is Waukegan? <laughs> I don't know how to fucking spell that shit. W-A-U-K-E-G-A-N. A description of the two was broadcast to police. As officers entered the area, a detective saw Coleman and Brown sitting on portable bleachers in empty Mason Park, but noted they were wearing different t-shirts. As the detective reported this, two sergeants who were driving by the park heard this, turned, and saw Coleman and Brown. Why do I feel like we are in the middle of a story? It's a soap opera. Keep going. I'm so confused. As they approached Coleman, the officers observed Brown walking away from Coleman toward the rear of the park. The detective joined the two sergeants, and Coleman was approached for questioning. He had no identification and denied he was Alton Coleman. Meanwhile, two other officers stopped Brown as she tried to exit the park, searched her, and found a gun in her purse. The pair were taken into custody without incident and transported to the Eviston Police Department, where both were identified by their fingerprints. I know this case now. It is on my lineup. And how the fuck are you supposed to tell anything by the way they wrote this? Friends. Alton? Yes. Coleman and Deborah Brown? They are on my list. Are they really? They are on my list, yeah. Holy shit. It's going to be in an upcoming episode. Okay, well, I just Googled it. We will not speak. We're not going to tell y'all because you're going to learn about it in a couple episodes. How many So just hang tight. I don't know. I'm going to tell you. What's the topic? No, don't say the topic. I'm not, but okay. Tell me, though. (laughs) In episode 61, you will learn all about them. I don't know why they wrote that like that because there ain't no way for you to be able to tell shit from that, but. Okay, well, y'all just hang tight till episode 61, and then you'll yeah. find out all about them. Yeah. Disappointing douchebox for you this week. I'm sorry. Sorry, friends. No, it's not disappointing. Like, to be continued. It's a teaser. Huh. Mm. We're being teases. <laughs> yeah. Swing. Swing. Okay. Okay, what else? Um, I don't know. Friends, I'm go to the tipsy. Facebook and the Instagram so hey. you can see the pictures. And tell us stuff. Tell us, like... About your hump day treat. Yeah, tell us what your hump day is. I mean, what your hump day treat is. We Uh, know your hump day is Wednesday. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Do us a favor. Will you go rate and, like, review? Do that. Nobody's done that for a while. Nobody's doing that. And it makes me sad all day. (laughs) And and I'm not sure why you wouldn't listen to one episode and go, holy fucking shit, these girls are amazing. They're my I besties. Love them. Let me go I'm rate listening and to them all the time now, so let me write and review them. Like, I just, I don't, I don't understand this. We're all besties. You do that kind of shit for your besties. Yeah. Because we love you guys. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I'm not, I'm not understanding mm. what's going on. We have so much fun stuff planned, you guys. We're going to hang out with you guys. No, we're not. It's coming. 
Maybe. We're making plans to hang oh out with God, you friends. Oh my God, that's only like two months away. It's coming so fast. <laughs> ah, that's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. That was good. I heard it as it was coming out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there's another one. Ma'am. Anyway. <laughs> Oh my God! It's going to be so much fun. You don't, just, just just wait till August, okay? Just 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 a couple more weeks. We're gonna start making some announcements. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was confused, but now I'm not. Good. <laughs> no more vodka for Brittany. It's fine. I'm a okay. And she did the peace sign. <laughs> oh fuck! It's fine. Okay, friends. This was fun. It was educational. It was educational. And there were s'mores. And there were s'mores. So I'm okay with that. S'mores and vodka. Y'all should make your own s'mores martinis. We'll post the we'll we'll post the recipe. Y'all make your own <laughs> s'mores martinis and post pictures of it. I am fine. <laughs> My friend. I'm fine. Okay. I'm fine. Okay, okay she's fine. Okay. We're all fine. Everything's We're all fine. fine. Okay. Um We're going to go. That's good, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're good. Everything's fine and bye. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. Thanks for hanging out with us. Don't forget to visit us on Facebook and Instagram for episode picks and announcements. Please rate and review on Apple, Spotify, and Facebook. We want to give a huge shout out to Stephen Goetzke for editing, Craig Weaver for music, and our very own Amanda Hagens for art. We'll talk at you next week.